0: Welcome to Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 6, Episode 6, presented by Marketile. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Well, Steve, our content for the people today is from the NRF Big Show in New York, and it's uh, the, one of the first or last interviews uh, that we did at the show, and, and it would be our last bit uh, for the podcast. Amish Tolas, co-CEO and co-founder at Leap, a very interesting and different retail model, I don't know, what would you call it? A store as a service or a store as a platform or what? Super interesting model.
1: Yeah, something something like that. But yeah, this, this idea of uh having a business that helps online only or previously online-only retailers open physical stores, uh really fascinating. It's been growing really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. And some interesting, I mean, I've been following them for a couple of years now but there are a lot of nuances kind of behind the scenes things that i definitely did not understand that i think are very very interesting so uh yeah i think it was a great interview great perspective and uh definitely a hot trend
0: but before we get to that let's talk about news of the week so um what did you call it? Vexing economic data. I mean, we, you know, it <laughs> yeah. reminds me of that, that old thing about I wish I had a one handed economist on one hand, on the other hand. Like, there's all these <laughs> signals that are like blow out sales for retail and then uh, employment is good, employment is bad. What do, you, what do you make of all this? How do you pull this all together for
1: the listeners? Well, I'm really hoping at some point we can stop talking about macroeconomics on the podcast, but I, <laughs> I feel know, like yeah. it's such, yeah. it's, it's so important. So, this was a big week. Uh, because we got the monthly sales number for the U.S., and uh, the sales overall were up year over year, 6.4%, which is pretty much exactly the same number as inflation is up. So that basically suggests, on average, that transactions were, were flat. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you... I, I guess it's just a point that perhaps everybody knows already that, you know, averages, particularly when you're talking about a vast, complex industry, can be very misleading. So, within those sales results, you had some sectors like sporting goods and health and beauty aids and things like that, which have been strong for a while and continue to be pretty strong. Uh, a couple of sectors like, like clothing and furniture, which had been kind of soft, seemed to show some improvement uh, weak categories like general merchandise and home improvement, and then really terrible numbers, decreases, significant decreases for consumer electronics and appliances. So it's kind of all over the place in terms of which sectors are doing well. But I think the big headline is sales growth is really pretty much explained by inflation. Then we also got some inflation data, which was a little bit better, more in the 6% range in the U.S. I think places like the U.K. are still seeing numbers like 10%. It's not really coming down. Uh, And a lot of folks, I remember right before Christmas, several people, I won't mention any names, but people that we, I think, probably all recognize, basically said, well, you know, inflation is going to come down as fast as it went up. Mm -mm. And that doesn't Mm -mm. seem to be the case. No. Um, And then the job market, and this is the one that I continue to get wrong. Um, I (laughs) just assume that at some point, not that it's going to get terrible, but that it can't get any stronger particularly Mm -hmm. with interest rates going up. You know, everything we learned in school and have experienced in most of our careers is that high interest rates tend to cause a significant slowdown and we're just not seeing it. Mm -hmm. So uh, what is really the outlook here? What's driving some of this? I think it's, it's really hard to make sense of other than I think the narrative now for the most part is maybe no recession, at least in the U S and, um, But, you know, probably inflation's going to stay on the high side, which means we're probably going to get more interest rate increases. But what that exactly means is, for every retailer, it's hard to say.
0: Well, I mean, and and, and you're reflecting back on, uh, or I'm reflecting back on what Ira had to say from uh, our economist, uh, chief economist from Deloitte, because he called that ball as well, right? He said, listen, I think employers are going to hoard people. Like, there's so many intersecting points here. Like, when you talk about inflation being very persistent i mean particularly in food because you've got these exogenous factors for example you and i were talking off mic about the uh, the egg shortage that's being caused by a global avian flu that's not going away you've also got um you know systematic environmental impacts on the growing of food that is raising the prices so these you know the price of food is is predicted uh, by my partner savant Charlebois to go up you know five to seven percent again this year like those forces are still very present now the good news is some of those categories, they're coming down, right? I mean, I'm not surprised that consumer electronics major appliances. We bought so many of them during COVID. Who needs another one, right? We're not, we're not ready for a new one. So, so complex. Yeah. It's, uh, it's yeah. super interesting to, to try and parse it, though, right?
1: Well, a couple, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, one is the thing, and, and the thing that's really confusing me, is I would, you know, we know while the job market's strong, wages have not kept up with okay. inflation, Yep. And we're now starting to lap last year's numbers. So it's one thing, you know, so last year we had 10% inflation. Now we got, say, 6% mm-hmm. on top of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the compounding effect of how much more expensive things are going, you know, going forward compared to, say, 18 months ago is pretty significant. And the things that are particularly expensive are groceries and housing. Yep. And those are things like, you know, <laughs> you got to eat, you got to live somewhere. So it's yeah. one thing if, uh, you know, furniture is particularly expensive. Well, maybe you say, "Well, you know, either I put that off for a little while or I spend a little bit less money." But you can't do that quite as quite as easily. So, I think for people, particularly the more economically challenged folks, which is you know most most people in yeah. in most of the countries, um, I, you would think there would be more of a squeeze um, on, on some of, this, of the spending.
0: Uh, this recession chicken trend that is parallel to the pandemic puppy. People are talking about getting their own chickens and raising their own eggs, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. what's going on. Yeah. which, by the way, is the recipe for disaster. Uh, because you know,
1: Well, I don't uh, want to have any chickens in here when I'm recording the podcast, I'll tell you that much. So well, don't expect that from me.
0: Nobody in here but us but us chickens. Anyway, um, it's super interesting, and I think it I think it ties into demographics. I think it ties into the aging of the population. Again, we talked Ira about that, that this is not a short-term phenomenon. The shortage of labor is not a short-term phenomenon. Phenomenon, and and uh, we just got to be careful we don't wind up like Japan, who had such an aging population and no new people to do the work. So okay, so so as you say, we, you know, we're not an economics podcast. Let's let's bring this to what are the lessons for your business? What are the, what's what are the lessons? We started this season talking about the tide going out for business. How do you tie these things together and and think about this as a as a leadership strategy uh, expert?
1: Well, I guess I'd say a couple things. One is you know, maybe the tide's not going out so much. Maybe we were wrong about that. Maybe we will be able to have, overall, a softer landing, so to speak. And uh, we won't see a recession, broadly speaking. But I think the key thing is, you know, your mileage may vary, right? It's it's not necessarily the case. Like, you know, there are clearly some big differences between the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. and Spain. And, you know, go around to different countries and, and see some pretty different pictures. So... Don't assume that everybody's going to kind of have the same experience. And I think more, even more importantly is tying it to your particular sector. Uh, the tech business, you know, the tech sector definitely looks like it's in recession. I would say, you know, the furniture business, the consumer electronics business, I mean, that has a lot of recession-like properties. It looks like it's going to be very hard to, to drive the top line. Other sectors, you know, maybe quite a bit better. Um, Mm -hmm. Inflation is the thing that's confusing though, right? Because Mm -hmm. you can be growing sales because of price increases and that doesn't necessarily tie to the profitability of your business, right? That's that sales aren't the same as profits. And we've talked Mm -hmm. a million times about the inventory glut. Like I think we're going to see a lot of retailers reporting Maybe decent sales, but not so decent gross margin performance because they've had to mark down stuff a lot. So mm-hmm. it's really about digging into your particular business and understanding mm-hmm. what levers you can pull and, mm-hmm. and not trying to paint too broad a brush.
0: I don't know. It's so complex because I talked, I talked to a lot of retailers who did pack and hold. So they're not thinking that they're going to take margin hits. They just already have the stuff. You know. So their, their costs have been warehousing. In other words, you know, I talked yeah. to a couple of big retailers. Said, "Listen, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna discount it off, but I've got it now, thanks to the weirdness of the supply chain. But you know, it's great stuff, and I'm happy with it. And and in in an ordinary cycle, you would exactly be having to mark stuff down. Now we should talk about in that ordinary cycle. Let's talk about um, Adidas, who has been yeah. talking about writing down like a, a lot of stuff after their partnership with uh, Kanye West." Uh, fell apart. Well, I don't know what we could describe that as falling apart. Whatever happened to that? <laughs> well,
1: yeah. Um, yeezy come, Yeezy not go so quickly because <laughs> yeah, yeah. yes, they have a ton, okay. a ton of inventory and like a lot, uh, right?
0: Like, how do they build up that much? Like, holy jump! And that's well, anyway. Um, talk about the number because it's just mind-boggling to me.
1: Oh, I, I I think they said that if they're not able to, well, they're trying to decide whether they want to even try to sell this stuff. You know, from an I guess image. Uh, standpoint, but yeah, they could lose 1.3 billion dollars uh, moving through or writing off basically all this inventory that they have left over. So yeah, that's that's a pretty daunting number. Assuming and somebody, uh,
0: what does that even mean, though, Steve? I mean, it, they got a bunch of stuff they don't want to sell. Who are they going to sell it to? Like, what do they do with it? Like, I think they might just incinerate it,
1: right? Like, well, my guess is that's yeah, my guess is that's yeah. what they're going to do, and yeah. which you know is a whole other thing. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's a very uh, I mean, it is the danger as much as some of these celebrity partnerships work out great. Uh, you know, they have they're fraught with a lot of danger as well if uh, uh-huh. something bad happens. So clearly this was a big, big mistake. And it's a huge, huge percentage of uh, that line had grown to be a really significant part of their business overall.
0: Let's talk about uh, Bed Bath & Beyond a little bit. Uh, it may not be on the radar screen, but they shut down their Canadian uh, stores they uh, declared went into uh, protection here in Canada and and uh, 54 Bed Bath and Beyond stores, eleven Bye Bye Baby stores. I'd never heard of Bye Bye Baby. Does that exist? <laughs> yeah. on, like, by the way, what a yeah, prophecy! Yeah, a, what, uh, name, what a prophecy of naming the store that way. By the way,
1: I know, so, yeah, I you know. know. Bye Bye Baby. Yeah. Bye uh, Well, I think we're going to continue to see fallout from Bed Bath and Beyond. Uh, you know, they're obviously they got this new financing we talked about last week. And, you know, they're just trying to stay afloat and right and right the ship. So I think anything that takes away from a kind of a laser like focus on the stores they're keeping and is a cash drain, uh, they're going to try to get out of. And so, yep. you know, I, I sort of understand, you know, they've got to really, really focus on on the core, which is uh, which is the U.S. and which is the Bed Bath yeah. & Beyond format, not so much the the bye bye baby format.
0: Let's talk on the other side of store openings. So we saw some interesting numbers around store openings. Uh, store is not dead. Um, and uh, talk about those, uh, just numbers that are, are might be surprising to some.
1: Yeah, well, our friends at Coresight, uh, who have been tracking this for a while, they uh, had an announcement this week that uh, for the first time since 2016, U.S. retailers opened more stores than they closed in 2022. And in fact, it wasn't even really close. Uh, about f- over 5,000 stores opened and 2,600 closed. So uh, I, what I think is interesting about this, I mean, clearly, I mean, aside from all the comments I make about physical retail not being dead, I mean, there's plenty of store chains that, you know, particular, you know, dollar stores and tractor supply and a bunch of other companies mm-hmm. that are not as fully penetrated geographically as they could be. They have a very successful formula. And so they continuing to, yeah, continuing to open open stores. Um, having said that, um, there's a really good study, maybe we'll put a link to it, or a good presentation that Benedict Evans does on, on trends overall oh, that yeah. talks a little bit about uh, one of the things he gets into is still the overcapacity uh, mismatch of supply and demand in the U.S., just how much retail space there still is uh, on a per capita basis. And I think that is still an issue that needs to get worked through. But, you know, you've got this issue of of retailers that have successful business models that don't need to close any stores or in fact can open them. And they've got plenty of retailers that are really struggling, uh, that need to rationalize their fleet and may go away entirely. And Mm -hmm. when this, I still think, and as part of my predictions this year, that we'll start to see the tide shift back more towards closings than, than openings. Uh, but you know that'll be very particular to to certain retailers that or formats that just aren't aren't winning with the consumer
0: you know tied to that, we should talk about what's happening still with downtowns around north america around the world but i I'm more familiar with the north american stats and and you've got some stats you're talking about for New York City. I was read there's a great uh, podcast on San Francisco that's talked about this, and we know that we look at the Toronto numbers, which are still only fifty plus percent maybe back to where it was so you know, this this recalibration of how we work is really having dramatic effects on retailers who are seeing their demands shift from one place to another. Right, the demand may not go down, but it, it's shifting dramatically. Talk about the uh, uh, what you saw for the numbers for New York City and and the workers that are not spending in Manhattan.
1: Yeah, there was an article that talked about uh, the study that showed that. New York City workers are spending, on average, four thousand six hundred and sixty-one dollars less per year near their offices. Now, obviously, Mm -hmm. New York City is a very expensive place, but if you think about the, you know, if you go into an office in a big city, chances Mm -hmm. are you are, you know, maybe going out for lunch. You're stopping for Starbucks on the way in. You're doing Mm -hmm. some shopping for, you know, you're getting a kid a birthday present or whatever it might be at the store that's near your office or on the way to the train uh, staying there to go to a show or a movie or go out to dinner, you know, all these kinds of things that drive your spending in a particular area because you're in the office. Uh, but given that still many places aren't anywhere close to being back to, Mm -hmm. to typical patterns, uh, it got a very big impact. And so that, yeah, that absolutely affects, uh, where real estate is able to stay open and, uh, and this shifts to the suburban areas where people are, spending more time. So we get into this a little bit. We've got Tom McGee from the ICSE on in a couple of weeks or I guess yep. next week and uh, we'll be talk about that. But I think it's really really fascinating because yeah, you're not necessarily spending fundamentally less money. You're just spending mm-hmm. it in really different ways and really different geographies and and that may benefit does benefit certain formats in certain locations.
0: Let's talk about uh, one of our prior guests. Great interview with Hal Lawton, who's been asked to stay on as CEO of Tractor Supply. It, it, let's talk about that for a little bit. But also, I, I made it reminded me of a great article in New York Times where a couple of our uh, guests have been uh, Simeon Siegel and and uh, Ron Thurston talking about the shortage of qualified retail CEOs. Pull all these things together for us.
1: Well, I think uh, you know uh, Hal being asked to stay on at Tractor Supply probably not. A surprise. I mean, their performance has been amazing. Uh, I think he's definitely considered one of the best CEOs in retail today. So, yeah, really, the story was just saying that his contract has been extended for for several years. Real vote of confidence, I think, for him and and mm-hmm. for the overall strategy. And uh, I would encourage people. Maybe we'll put a link in the show notes. Go back and listen to that interview. I think one of our best and one of our best performing episodes. Yeah. And then, yeah, this article about the shortage or the openings. Uh, that currently are in place at quite a bit of retailers and quite a few retailers and how difficult it is to find that new skill set. And this does touch a little bit on one of my predictions about the need or the desire or maybe the hope that more and different kinds of leaders will, will come into these retail positions, not only diversity of experience and and background and, you know, uh, gender, et cetera. Um, but really this, this different perspective. And I think it is a real challenge when you think mm-hmm. about, you know, we talked about uh, the new leadership at Kohl's, I guess, last week or the week before. Mm-hmm. You think about what some of these retailers need. You know, not only do you need somebody who understands product and operations and supply chain and, and technology, but the impact of, of digital, changing demographics. You know, it's really, really, uh, these businesses have become very different than they were, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And lots of leaders, I think, you know, people listening to this have been in retail for a long time. Well, know mm-hmm. for the most part, the classic profile for a retail CEO is to either come up through merchandising or to come up through store ops. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that may not be and often isn't enough uh, breadth of experience uh, to really understand what it takes to run a successful retailer. So I think, I think it's really interesting and we'll mm-hmm. see how some mm-hmm. of these big jobs get, end up getting filled.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting because I, I, if we think about people and how hard it is to find people and how important it is to keep great people, never unimportant in retail, but it's the now replaced, I think it's now replaced supply chain as the, as the most significant challenge at a global level for retailers. So you better have someone that's like, I, when I think of Lot Lawton, I think of all the p- pictures he often posts on LinkedIn when I follow him on social media of him in the stores, him talking to the people, him connecting with the people right. that make it happen, right? as, as old saying goes no cash registers in head of office right you get out and, and see the people so i think that people component of being an amazing ceo is is you know more important now than than ever so i think that that really jumped out at me as well all right now just before we get to our excellent interview with amish tola from leap a few words from our presenting sponsor there are two types of retailers those that are committed to transforming at the speed of disruption those that aren't if you're a retailer that implements significant changes by intuition you may soon join the hall of shame of executives who bet the farm on initiatives that ultimately failed. So, you know, maybe consider brushing up your resume. But if you are a retailer hungry for a better way to gain useful insights on the impact of your store layout, design, and innovation pilots, you need to know MarketDial. MarketDial is an easy-to-use testing platform that emboldens great decisions, leading to reliable, scalable results. With MarketDial, you can be confident in the outcome of your in-store pilot initiatives before rolling them out across your fleet. Validate your remarkable ideas with market dials in-store testing solution. The proof is in the testing. Learn more at marketdiel.com.
1: That's MarketDile.com. Well we're excited to welcome Amish Tola from Leap to the Remarkable Retail Podcast. Welcome, how are you today? Doing wonderful. Yeah, we had a little issue getting you into the building, <laughs> but you are you are here and ready to go. So we will. It's exciting uh, to be here. We'll, we'll go from there. But uh, great energy. We generally like to start off by having our guests give us a little sense of their uh, personal and professional journey, and then we'll kind of dive into what Leap is about and what, what you're up to.
2: Great, 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 great. Well, uh, thank you guys for um, inviting me to join you guys. Excited yeah. to tell you about the story. Uh, I'm originally a Midwest guy, uh, born and raised in um, right outside of Detroit, Michigan. Mm. And um, since uh, you know growing up there, I had a fairly entrepreneurial background. And um, this is now um, about 18 years later, the fourth company my co-founder and I have started together. Oh, uh, all together! I didn't. I, yeah, guess I yeah. didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and so my co-founder and I, Jared, he's also a Midwest guy from Columbus, Ohio, and uh, we met at University at Indiana. And um, that's actually where we started our first business. Mm-hmm. We were in a consumer uh, T-shirt printing business, right. and you know we were the college kids. And two and a half years later, we ended up figuring out how to hack our way to a, a scaled business model. And mm-hmm. uh, we ran about forty-six college campuses. And um, we actually sold the business at time of graduation, and uh, that parlayed into a quick stint on uh, Wall Street as Wall Street analysts. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh that was of course uh two thousand and eight, so you know' <laughs> nice it, timing it, yeah, yeah exactly. a little foreshadowing <laughs> there in the conversation my uh yeah my third day on the desk, uh Lehman had actually you know Lehman fell, and i, I looked across the the desk to one of the m d s and I asked uh, does this happen often and <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me like cross eyed and said go, go back to your desk kid um, and so anyways um We did uh, about 18 months on the street there, and we ended up departing and leaving uh, to to start our second company, um, which we launched in Chicago. Uh, We built that company for about eight-plus years, and it was a unique uh, sort of marketing services business. Mm -hmm. Um, And we got it to an interesting scale um, and a lot of great insights from it, a lot of great learnings. Uh, About halfway through that company's journey, though, it was acquired by a large e-commerce company called Mm -hmm. Mm CustomInc.com. Um, and so, my co founder, Jared, and myself, we co led growth at Custom Inc. for about four years from 2012 to 2016. Um, it was actually there where the the idea uh, or sort of the, the, the beginnings of Leap really came from, in the sense of um, one of the projects we were sort of supporting and helping bring to life was figuring out how to get Custom Inc. in the retail world, mm. right? Um, it was a. So, it
1: wasn't that you were trying to create. Elite business and we'll get into details what it's about, but it was yeah. it was more that you kind of backed into it because of Correct. the specific.
2: Yeah, yeah, you you got it. I mean we were one hundred percent an e-commerce business where you know all of our growth had come from, you know, or mostly growth for e-commerce businesses come from in the early days, right? Yeah. Uh, search and social and direct response TV, um, and we needed to figure out what was the next lever, next channel of growth. Um right. and so naturally retail became that and we and we learned sort of the, you know, a bit of the hard way that Retail hasn't really seen a tremendous amount of innovation just as it pertains to how you think about building and scaling the channel over time, right? Um, And so, after we departed uh, Custom Inc. in about 2017, we put a bunch of ideas on a a whiteboard and we were, you know, somehow got back to the world of hey, maybe there should be and can be a more scalable, more efficient Mm -hmm. version um, for the retail channel. And, um, anyways, That was basically our backstory and how we got to 2018 when we launched the company.
1: And so for our listeners uh, that may not be familiar, just describe what the fundamental leap business model is about, kind of the scale and scope at this point, and then we can kind of dig into some more particulars.
2: Yeah. So for for forever, I mean, it's, you know, the barriers to entry in the brick and mortar channel have been pretty high, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Lots of upfront sort of capex, lots of ongoing sort of corporate overhead that you need to build and scale over time. Um, there's just very little flexibility in the channel, right your long term commitments building big teams right right um, and it that just felt literally right at odds with where we are in kind of modern commerce landscape hmm. um, and so meanwhile there's some some you know of course inspiration in the world of you know how easy it is to start an online storefront right, right. I mean just take Shopify for example, in five minutes we can license a storefront and then really up to us to figure out what we want to sell and how we get traffic to the storefront yeah. right and so that was a lot of the inspiration could we create a version of Shopify for offline no oh, that's neat right uh, so a platform approach one that had some unique advantages that you know no one brand has on their own right mm-hmm. and I can kind of dig into that in a moment but yeah the short of the long is um, we've built a platform business that brands utilize to deploy physical retail stores mm-hmm. right uh, it could be one location it could be many locations over time right and um, and, you know, the, the literal manifestation of it is you can walk into any of our stores today and it's a one brand, one store. Um, so you walk into the store, it looks like a brand. Uh, it's their flag outside, but it's actually our location. We sign the lease. Um, it's our team. We staff and we operate the store. It's all of our technology in the store. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seamlessly integrates with their e-commerce to, to work in concert mm. with their e-commerce. Um, so, of course, their their shoppers can have a really seamless and efficient shopping experience online offline.
0: You know, I had the... Uh, on Saturday, I was walking through 50 CEOs from Canada on a retail tour. Cool. And so part of the retail tour said, we're going to go look at Leap stores. Oh, cool. And they, they were just, what is this? Like, <laughs> what are you talking that about? That sounds like, like
1: a marketing problem. I,
0: yeah. I, you know, I... I um, <laughs> you know, we're on a bus and I'm going, we're going to look at these leaf stores. So we're doing a walking tour in Soho. And I said, cool. so we went, the first <laughs> one we went to was Melbourne golf. Oh, cool. And so I, as, as I said to them, then we went to, uh, or, yeah. or yeah. yeah. Um, and so I said, you know, I basically explained what I know about the model. Yeah. I know, not, I know yeah. more of it now. Yeah. And in the stores, it was interesting. So there's some leap documentation, right? Yeah. Right. How to drive sales, how to okay. do this, how to do that. Yeah. So I understand the platform you create. Right. And, um tons of questions from the retailers. Like I, I said, do they set their e-commerce up? I said, no, the people who are doing this, they're generally pretty good at e-commerce. Yeah. They just don't understand stores. You got it. Right. So what services do you offer them? you you described, you know, hire, lease and all that stuff, but I saw some materials about how to drive sales and loss prevention and stuff like that. So oh, un- yeah. unpack a few of those for us. Oh,
2: absolutely. Well, um, how cool that you went and saw some of the stories. And of course I've got some questions in return. How, <laughs> how was your experience, right? Uh, actually, Ma- Malbine Golf is one of my favorite yeah. favorite uh, locations of ours. Yeah. Now, I think we're actually in New York City by some measure. I, somebody was trying to explain this to me inside the company the other day. We're probably the largest soft good retail mm-hmm. operation in New York City wow. measured by store count,
0: if I'm not mistaken. And you've got so. a, you, I think you go to Yards, yeah, got a shops at Hudson Yards. Store shops at Hudson Yards. got a couple there. Too, really. um, yeah. I think
2: we're coming up to 33, 34 locations in New York City mm, yeah. um, on its own. And, and so anyways, uh, yeah, to, to let me kind of tell you how it works a little bit, sure, right? Sure, So if you're a brand today and, you know, you manufacture whatever it might be, footwear, apparel, you know, home furnishings, uh, et cetera, and you're predominantly an e-commerce merchant, right? You sell your goods online, um, but of course, due to a whole host of different factors, it's getting pretty
0: tough online, right? I and mean, sure. saturate
2: it's the easy sat-
0: days of the platforms yeah. are over. Right? right. I mean, you know, yeah.
2: being able to quote unquote hack Facebook and get customers at fairly yeah. low prices, those days are kind of gone. Are so, up, gone right. yeah. so naturally it becomes okay, what do we do next? Right? And so omnichannel is kind of the the future and naturally in you know our world we're we sit right at the nexus of that, right? We enable for omnichannel and so um, through our data we see the brand's online data and the store data, and so we can see the omni-channel customer behavior and, mm. and see kind of, you know, what the value is of that customer over a 12-month period or a 24-month compar- you know, period when right. compared to an e-commerce-only customer, you know, the metrics are really astounding. They're
1: awesome, yeah. right? Yeah. So and do you actually, just a quick question, do yeah. you actually help with store location? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay.
2: Right, so, so how it works is brands come to basically the front door of our website and they go through an underwriting process, right? So... Um, they'll tell us about their business. They'll integrate their e-commerce to our back end. And that will spin a number of different algorithms on our end, right? Because mm-hmm. um, we'll look at their e-com data plus all of our brand's e-com data plus our local operating data, which is from our stores, right? I mean, when you've got 34 stores in New York City sure. clustered between Soho or the West Village or Upper East Side, yeah. you have a lot of intelligence around what's happening on the hyper-local level, Right. What are people shopping for? How much are they spending? Where are they coming from? Time of day, day, you know. So you overlay these data sets, and that helps us get a lot of intelligence around, Mm. um, A, is a brand a good fit for retail in the first place, right? Um, Unit economics of their business, their assortment breadth and depth, right? Um, That's part one. Part two is if if we get a good amount of confidence that, hey, their brand is going to be a good fit for retail, then where do we think they're going to best perform, right? Mm -hmm. And so we'll simulate their business in one of our clusters, right? Okay, we think that this brand has the product, has the you know um, unit economics to be in a Soho location or right. a Noho location mm-hmm. or Williamsburg, Brooklyn, et cetera.
0: Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Because um, I think Hanky Panky is one of yours as well, right? right. And they're And they're off. They're not in Soho. They're off in uh, the West Village. The West Village, but Actually, right? they've got
2: two locations now on the platform. Right. Um, one's on 3rd Street in Williamsburg and the other's on Bleaker Street right. in, yeah. in, in New York. But it has
1: uh, also uh, tended to be the case that there are certain parts of the country, right, where these DTC new DTC brands tend to be, right? So that totally. helps you. In totally. Terms of knowledge and focus
2: yeah so so actually it's part of our strategy to be honest i mean it's a core part of our strategy to cluster our store locations right and when you when you when you create a lot of density you just create unfair advantage for Mm. yourself and the brands sure right um i'll give you a couple examples of what that really looks like um so when you create density we can cross pollinate our shoppers across all of our store locations Mm. oh because you bought uh this um, you know, hoodie from Malbon Golf, you might want to pair it with this denim from Fred Siegel, right? And so mm, right. Um, we can cross-pollinate to shoppers based on their shopping behaviors. And actually, it's a, it's a fun stat. Across all of our locations now, network-wide, we're just about a, just north of 100 locations, 60 brands on the platform across the markets where we operate, 11 markets we operate. Um, in 2022, about 10% of total network-wide sales was a direct result Mm. of our our marketing efforts, Leap's marketing efforts, that was a first-time customer to the brand. Mm. Now,
0: Now, unpack that a little bit for me. So from a customer experience perspective, I go shop at this great golf. I have no idea... Leap is behind it. Yep. And Correct. then I get a an email about another store Correct. that's yeah. connected is at, like how do you smooth that transition? That's a bit that could be jarring yep. if you're not careful. Totally.
2: Right? Um, yeah. So you could shop at, you know, call it Malbon Golf powered by Leap. And so in in the store experience there's some as you called out, right? There's some subliminal messaging that allows the customer to mm-hmm. know that actually Leap is the merchant and you happen to be in a Malbon store powered by Leap and actually at the time of transaction the the I don't know if anybody purchased anything, but um, we should probably take them back. We and, probably We were moving too fast the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to,
0: to get in the nuances of these tours. If they start buying stuff, I'm dead because I can I got to keep them moving. You know? No, no, like... I get that. No, so so the actual transaction. <laughs> they love the golf. They love the golf club covers, though. Yeah, they're cool. At Malibur, so, <laughs>
2: they're, yeah. they're really cool. I gotta say. They um, so the transaction actually when you look at your credit card statement, you'll actually see and Golf powered oh, by okay. Leap. Okay. Right. And so at that point, we start building kind of the awareness with the brand, et cetera. Et Et cetera. And so, you know, it's some, there's some cadence. It's like T plus seven days later, 14 days later, 21 days right. later. You'll get some messaging. Hey, because you, you know, um, thanks for shopping at Malbon Golf in Soho. Check out other awesome modern brand stores in the local neighborhood. Right. 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 Um, or, you know, if we have, then there's like versions of that where if we have enough buying behavior of a shopper, we can actually take them down a journey, which is, okay, we understand enough about your buying behavior, mm. you know, you, you buy a lot of, you know, athleisure, you might mm. want to pair it with, you know, shoes that fit really well,
0: sure. Oliver Cabell with athleisure, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and, so. you, and for the merchants in the stores, uh, loss prevention, all that you hire the people, all those, like, there's tactical things, because the, the people yeah. who are, it seems to me that the brands know pretty well, plus or minus e-commerce, it's the, you know, the hard parts, as you know about running totally. stores, right? Yeah. Like, how do I, what does what the loss prevention do? How do I even handle that? What do I do to drive sales and all yeah. that stuff? You provide some of those guidance Absolutely. to the associates. That's a big, seems like a yeah. big value. To so you.
2: everything is now standardized, right? I mean, it's, yeah. um, there's SOPs in place from pretty much anything, right? So from how we receive inventory, right? And right. how a brand should be thinking about hang tags, yeah. right? Everything's done to our requirements because it's just the only. Way we've right. been able to scale a business, right? Um, and so, like LP, it's pretty. Standard. I mean, we're not a big box retailer, right? right. We're not right. talking about two hundred thousand feet across X number of locations. Yeah. Talk about these are thousand foot. Yeah, formats. they're small. Some of them are right. very small, right? Yeah. And I think our average square footage across our twelve hundred locations is about twelve hundred feet, give or take. Mm. Okay. Right. So there's small locations, and you know, assortment wise, you know, we're talking about a couple thousand units of 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 goods, yeah, yeah. you know, between front of house and back of house. But nevertheless, I mean, you know, there's, of course, SOPs in place on how we mm. manage
1: a bunch of things like LP, right? Okay. right. When um, when retailers come to you or these brands come to you, is it is it generally the case that they have very big aspirations for store growth and this is their way to kind of get started mm-hmm. or is this more kind of just we'll probably just have a few stores so it's not worth because Because imagine some yeah. companies are like well they'll use you until they figure it out right and yeah. then they'll hire people as opposed to yeah. we're never going to get or chances are we'll never get really big
2: in you know, physical
1: retail you know the Warby but, Parker versus the you know, I yeah. don't know some other stores that have one or two kind of marketing locations a lot
2: of our aspiration with Leap has always been trying to figure out how to turn the channel into as much of a performance channel as you, as you possibly can, right? Mm-hmm. You can flex it up and you can flex it out and based on performance, right? And so there's a number of different advantages that we bring to the table that no one brand would get on their own, irrespective of them figuring it out, quote unquote, on a four wall basis, right? right? So the data network effects, right? So we have a ton, all of the intelligence we have from a national perspective to a local perspective. No one brand has that on their own. And so we can make better decisions, right? Where to put a brand from a location perspective, what to assort in the store, Mm -hmm. how to think about marketing, how to think about operations, et cetera, right? That's part one. The customer cross-pollination is part two, right? The density that we create is part three. When you create a lot of density, you just have economies of scale. And so brands become benefactors of economies of scale they wouldn't have on their own. Sure. Right? So a number of these things add up to... You know, not to mention the fact that they don't have to build the corporate SGNA, the overhead, they right. don't have to sign the long term leases, yeah, they don't yeah, have yeah. to put up the CapEx. Yeah. So when you take all these things into account, it's actually they don't just launch one store with us, they actually think about how do we end up scaling this thing mm-hmm. on the leap platform over mm-hmm. time that works for both parties, right? right. Works right. within the platform constructs and yeah. works for their business. Yeah. And so we've actually found the inverse. Um, some of our, you know, um, some of our brands now are, you know, Started dabbling their toes into retail on their own, yeah. they realized, "Oh, wow, this is really this tough. Is than we're retail. not, <laughs> yeah, we're right. not built to do this." Yeah, yeah, Turns right. right. it's not quite right. as easy as yeah. Seems right. that. And tight, then they right. found Leap, yeah. and now next thing you know, I mean, I think one of our brands went from zero stores to ten stores in one year, just mm. last year. But you,
0: you got me thinking about um, short term and thinking about okay, at least it doesn't work for everybody, right? Yeah. So how short term is short term? Can I sign for one year? Can I sign for two? Yeah. Can and and do you evaluate and say, listen, um, love your brand. This isn't just. You know, you've got a piece of the action, right? You get a percentage of yeah. sales. So you've got a business model as well. It's an aligned business model. Right, yeah. and you basically say, listen, it's not working out, so uh, you know, we're going to part ways. And is that kind of sunset of that deal is kind of based on yeah. time? How do yeah, you, yeah. How do so there's kind of two that?
2: parts to this. One is, naturally, we're underwriting and launching brands on the platform that actually think about retail at a commercial scale, sure. right? Um, so that's a big piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah. We want to we launch and operate brands that are thinking about getting to four stores, 10 stores, 50 stores, 100 stores, et cetera, over time. And so um, now in our world, if, a, if we deploy a brand into a particular location, and let's just say hypothetically, it wasn't working that well, sure. right? They're using our data, they're using our merchandisers, they're using our marketing capabilities, and they're effectuating change to try to drive lift in a store to see improvement. And let's just say, Six months pass by, and it's still you're not really growing right mm-hmm. past a certain threshold on a monthly sales level, uh, monthly sales perspective. At that point, we think about okay, maybe it's probably not a good fit for this location, okay. right? Okay. And so. Uh, it's generally a conversation, right? And you know, it's
0: not an email, right? Right, Exactly. And we yeah. can
2: pull the brand out of that location, and we'll deploy another brand into the same location. That and that happens very quickly. It happens within two to four weeks max. Oh, interesting, interesting. Right. So we have that kind of flexibility from our modular fixturing systems to the demand liquidity from. A lot of different brands right. that want to be in these premium locations, right?
1: So, some of our listeners may be familiar with um, Neighborhood Goods. We've had Matt on the podcast uh, cool. recently. Yeah. Uh, Showfields. I know there are a bunch of pretty good-sized pop-up agencies. Yeah. Do you consider them competition, or just sort of compare and contrast mm-hmm. what you do versus what, yeah, what those no, what I mean, those folks for, do? For starters. We love anybody that's doing something fun and interesting in the
2: world of you know the future of retail. Yeah. Um, but for those folks, by no means. I mean, you know, actually, our brands are users of the Leap platform and also use Showfields or mm. they may use Neighborhood Goods. I mean, they're very. It's incumbent upon brand building organizations uh, today to think yeah. about growing their points of distribution.
0: And there was one brand I thought that I, I specifically read. They said you could find us both in our own store and in Showfield. because So there's right. multiple points of presence, right? Yeah,
2: exactly right.
0: Listen, it's a really cool model. Yeah. So um, if people want to learn more about it, yeah. go to the website. But are yeah. you are you a LinkedIn guy? Like talk about that? Are yeah, you, uh, yeah.
2: They can reach me on LinkedIn. They can send me an email. They can yeah. uh, you know uh, come to our website. Yeah. I mean we're we're open for business. I mean the business is growing incredibly fast. Yeah. And, uh,
0: typically, it's typically in these things that the last question is you know what's next? But it seems <laughs> you know. <laughs> basically, it, it, not to put words in your mouth, you basically got the model. You're gonna, you're just gonna go scale it and, and spread the word. That's yeah, next, right? You, you is, got it. Is, right. Is, all right.
2: I mean, we've it's the business has been around for four and a half years, and yeah. you know, we are we're, we're fighting to keep up every day, right? I mean, we've got a lot of demand from some great brands, and we're, um, you know went from 2020 mid 2020 with a dozen locations to mm. in two years literally two years 100 yeah. locations and 60 brands and so now it's all about quality and, and sure. you know um, but yes we will be continuing to scale the model continuing to launch new brands et cetera. Et cetera.
0: all right fantastic yeah. well listen we're, thanks for joining us here at the yep, NRF show. Uh, we're sitting here in the Market dial booth. So uh, we had a bunch of fun with your plexiglass behind you. Yeah. And, and uh, But this, this is great. great. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for making the effort to get up here. It's a big, <laughs> it's a big place. <laughs> Don't sweat And uh, it. Don't look forward sweat. to keeping in touch. And best of luck as you move forward. Thanks a lot. Much appreciated. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform. So you can catch up with all our great interviews, including Organized for Growth, our interview with Satish Mahatra, CEO of The Container Store. New episodes of Season 6 presented for another season by our friends at Marketile, will show up each and every Tuesday. And be sure and tell all your friends and colleagues in the retail industry all about us.
1: And I'm Steve Dennis, author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com.
0: And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker and producer, and host of a series of retail trade podcasts, including this one. You can learn even more about me on LinkedIn, and you can catch up with Steve and I in person at Shop Talk in Vegas, March 26th, and a month later in Barcelona at the World Retail Congress, April 25th. Until then, safe travels,
1: everyone.